From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence. Powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, the national conversation, it's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, August 1st through Friday, August 5th, 2022. It was a week of mixed messages on the economic, political, health, and Cold War fronts. Get ready for a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, we've got righties, and we've got fence sitters. Please don't get angry, just listen closely. And while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism, regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey at Talkers with a countdown of the 10 biggest topics of the week. Harry Hurley in Atlantic City, Jack Heath in New Hampshire, Richard Neer in New York, and Greta Van Sustern in Washington, D.C. Influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Wrap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, U.S. Representative Jackie Walorski dies in a car crash. The Indiana Republican Congresswoman was killed in a car accident that also took the lives of two of her staffers. The Congresswoman, who was well-liked by her colleagues on both sides of the aisle, served as the top Republican on the House Ethics Committee, a spot that put her in line to become chair of the panel if the GOP retakes the House majority in the upcoming midterm elections. At number nine, a three-way tie between race relations, immigration, and climate change. All three topics continue to be news talk radio staples. The disastrous flooding in Kentucky prompted continuing conversation about the politically charged subject of climate change. At number eight, a tie between COVID-19 and monkeypox. At a briefing with the Department of Health and Human Services this week, the Biden administration declared monkeypox a public health emergency with cases on the rise across the U.S. The declaration follows the World Health Organization announcement last month that monkeypox is a public health emergency of international concern. Since the first U.S. monkeypox case was identified in mid-May, more than 6,600 probable or confirmed cases have been detected in the United States. Monkeypox can infect anyone, But the majority of cases in the U.S. outbreak have been among men in the LGBTQ community. At number seven, the Alex Jones trial. The conspiracy-peddling talk show host will have to pay the parents of a Sandy Hook shooting victim more than $4 million in compensatory damages, capping a stunning and dramatic case that showcased for the public the real-world harm inflicted by viral conspiracy theories. And it appears this is not the end of Alex Jones mounting legal problems and tarnished reputation. Even the January 6th committee is seeking his accidentally leaked text messages. At number six, a tie between the Russia-Ukraine war and the U.S. killing of al-Qaeda's leader. 
in a move clearly interpreted as retaliatory by Vladimir Putin for U.S. support of Ukraine, American basketball star Brittany Griner was convicted of drug smuggling and sentenced to nine years in prison for carrying less than a gram of cannabis oil through a Moscow airport. That now sets the stage for a prisoner swap negotiation between the superpowers as Russia seeks the freedom of notorious arms dealer Victor Bout. Meantime, the U.S. drone strike that killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman Zawahiri in Kabul last weekend reminded Americans that Islamic extremists are still active in spite of so many other distracting issues and problems. At number five, the January 6th committee hearings. According to a number of news sources, former President Donald Trump's legal team is now in direct communication with the Justice Department officials, the first sign of talks between the two sides as the criminal probe into the Capitol riot accelerates. The talks revolve around whether Trump would be able to hide conversations he had while he was president from federal investigators. At number four, crime, guns, and public safety. The statistics in street crime, burglaries, and deadly shootings and an atmosphere of lawlessness in the nation's key urban areas coast to coast continues to spiral out of control. And the danger has even spread to elected and appointed government officials, a disturbing syndrome that we'll further discuss in a few minutes. At number three, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and U.S.-China relations. The House Speaker's high-profile visit to Taiwan has certainly sent a message to both the independent island and the Chinese Communist Party that the United States firmly stands behind its commitment to protect Taiwan from Beijing's building military threat. But has it embarrassed and inflamed Chinese President Xi Jinping and escalated the danger of war, even nuclear war, between China and the U.S.? At number two, a three-way tie between partisan politics, elections, and abortion rights. Primary after primary, leading up to the general midterms, the results of GOP races continue to be interpreted as a measurement of Donald Trump's influence as a Republican Party kingmaker and potential presidential candidate in 2024. The results thus far are murky, subject to spin and interpretation. Meantime, the huge turnout and unexpected pro-choice vote this week in Kansas, considered a red Republican stronghold, sent the message that perhaps the conservatives have gone too far with the repeal of Roe v. Wade and have triggered a huge Democratic Party voter backlash that could suggest significantly impact the midterm elections. Never a dull moment. And at number one this week, the economy. Although gas prices are beginning to ease, the housing market is cooling off and the definition of a modern-day recession remains ambiguous. The increasingly high cost of living is creating top-of-mind suffering for a majority of American families. Basically, there's so much noise in today's world coupled with dramatic economic disruption triggered by the pandemic and political spinning that it's increasingly difficult to focus on expert economic definitions, analysis, and predictions worth a crap. Aren't you sick of the word uncertain? Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Crime continues to be one of the hottest talk media topics week after week. Let's kick off the interview segment of this week's program by checking in with Harry Hurley, the morning host at our Atlantic City, New Jersey affiliate, WPG. Harry, the public safety situation in America seems to be going from bad to worse. It's even impacting the well-to-do in the political class. This is a very important topic that is serious as it is, and as much escalation there is in political violence, I don't think it's being talked about enough. It's my belief that we have hit a critical tipping point in America. You made a very good point. You would think these are some of the most protected people, but let's not forget, one got shot on a baseball field, and had they not had a security detail, all of them would have got massacred. Uh, so we know that happened a few years ago. Now we have things like Associate Supreme Court Justice 
Brett Kavanaugh and the assassination attempt on him and the degree to which someone was willing to go, probably involving his family, and even said later that he wanted to get and end the life of up to three members of the Supreme Court so that, quote-unquote, he could change the balance of power in this country for the next generation to come. We have Lee Zeldin at a speech. We have Pramila Jayapal. So uh, it's not just Republicans. It's not just Democrats. There is an atmosphere in our country right now, Michael, that is flat-out dangerous. I hear talking to people around the country, particularly in urban areas, that there's a, a palpable sense of law, lawlessness on the streets, that, that, that the cities feel different than they used to. Um, you're, you're in Atlantic City, which is, is kind of an urban place. Uh, it is. Are you getting that, that it, feel it, on the streets it, in Atlantic Michael, City? Without a doubt. Let me give you an example. The other morning, I'm minding my own business, and I get a social media instant message. It's from someone I know. It's a very credible person. And the person tells me I'm in a certain big box store in Atlantic City, and there is a person just helping themselves to anything that they want, loading up an enormous bag of stuff with no intentions to pay for any of it, and they're going to just walk right out. Even if they get stopped at some point, they will get some kind of summons, they will get taken somewhere for processing, and within hours, they'll be released. We're playing catch and release, and the bad guys know it. Lee Zeldin said after the attempt on his life that his attacker, he said it before it happened, he said, my attacker will be set free just a few hours from now. Within four or five hours, his uh, alleged attacker was set free. So I believe the bad guys feel that they can act with impunity, and we, we're, we're deadwood now. It, it, there's no laws. It's just whatever anybody wants to do, and this is why big stores are closing in major cities. And I can tell you, there's a store that wants to open in an area that I know. The company before building wanted $500,000 a year to make up for the theft that's going to be taking place. They wanted a subsidy in order to be able to provide basic services. Then they upped it to a million. We have a serious problem, Michael, in this country. Do you think that there's a, an across-the-board connection uh, in terms of the cause of this rise in crime between the type of crime you're talking about, um, shoplifting and uh, street crime, burglaries, etc., violence on the streets, and then jumping, you know, the leap toward political uh, violence and um, people in Congress and uh, in elected positions suddenly being fearful for their lives. All right, so I count at least four threads there, and I will say yes, 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 and yes. Break them down. Nobody thinks anything now of stealing. You used to be worried what would happen to me. I'm not going to get away with it. I'm going to lose my freedom. I'm going to go to jail. Now they know that's out of, of bounds and that they can just do it with no penalty. The other thing that's so concerning, you saw it. Everybody listening to the Michael Harrison rap saw it. A woman is at the top of an escalator, and she gets pushed down the escalator. People are walking down the street and there's no regard for human life anymore. You could just get absolutely demolished, sucker punch, cold, cocked, uh, knockout game, they call it. it it's, it's unbelievable. And now it has extended to police where there's no respect for them. So they get verbally and even physically assaulted and things pelted at them. Uh, we, we saw all that during the summer of love. It was awful. And when you break down societal norms, 
This is what you get, and now it has escalated to the Supreme Court, to the United States Congress. Yeah, yes to everything you said. What is the connection between these these threads that you say are connected? But what's the underlying connecting cause of it? Why are people um, so prone to nasty, horrible behavior to each other um, on the streets and uh, in day-to-day life, it, it, this toxicity in our in our society, is it being generated by the media? Is it being generated by um, the political parties? What's, what's the cause of this? I think it's an escalation of, if you think about it, we used to have finality with elections, whether it was John F. Kennedy in a narrow win over Nixon or any other time that the election was close. People just accepted the results and if you felt like you got cheated, you just you just took it. I ran a close election once many, many years ago and lost by a handful of votes. I thought some hanky-panky went on. I went and congratulated the winners. And within two months, we started the career, uh, the, the joy of my life professionally, and that is becoming a talk show host. So in losing an election, I won. But I didn't cry. I didn't complain. Uh, I took it. and And that's what we did. A woman or a man manned up. You just accepted the results as final. You respected the system. There's no respect for our institutions. There's no respect for authority. There's no respect for our elected officials. No respect for police officers. So why would why would we expect? How could we expect a different result? Now, I don't think it has to be permanent. It was a very disruptive time, as you know, in the 1960s. Uh, Martin Luther King, Kennedy, John Kennedy before that, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, all assassinated, Malcolm X, all kinds of violence, Kent State, you could keep going. We had horrible things going on, and then America had a very peaceful uh, generation or so. We are now back to sort of the 1960s where norms are not respected or appreciated and not observed. I think it's even worse, though, in many respects. I, I think maybe the digital nature of our country where it started with um, saying terrible things, then graduating to thinking about acting out in, in very violent ways, to then actually acting out in violent ways. There just seems no respect for the value of human life. They laugh as they're assaulting someone and, and possibly killing them. Uh, they set out to do these things, and I don't know what the reset is, but I think it's all the above, and I will give you one more demarcation line real quick. Bush v. Gore, the election of, 20, uh, of 2000, that election was not accepted. President Bush's legitimacy questioned, and that then set in, in motion that – notice how many elections have been contested since 2000. It's the way it is now, Michael. Now no elections are final. You're waiting weeks and weeks, and you just hear uh, it's not final. Stacey Abrams has still not accepted defeat uh, four years ago. Hillary Clinton didn't accept defeat. My boss, my former boss, President Trump, hasn't accepted defeat uh, in 2016, or 2020, rather. Uh, so that's, that's where we are. It, we, this is an accumulation award, and we've graduated to a very dangerous place. That's Harry Hurley, the morning host at our affiliate WPG in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Coming up next, a visit with Jack Heath at our affiliate network, The Pulse of New Hampshire. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap.
Bernadette Duncan spent 26 years as a radio talk show producer. In her new book, Yappy Days, Behind the Scenes with Newsers, Schmoozers, Boozers, and Losers, she shares her adventures in the trenches of big-time talk radio during the changing backdrop of America's pre- and post-9-11 realities. This exciting story includes Bernadette's impressions of the quirky celebrity talk show hosts whom she served during her career. Larry King, Sally Jesse Raphael, Gil Gross, Tom Snyder, Lou Dobbs, Charles Osgood, and more. It's full of anecdotes about hundreds of high-profile guests from media, show business, and politics. Also quirky, ego-driven, and neurotic. Yappy Days, behind the scenes with newsers, schmoozers, boozers, and losers, an analytical look at the media, journalism, and the complex nature of ego. Get it now at Amazon.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap, let's check in with talk show host Jack Heath, who's heard mornings on her affiliate, The Pulse of New Hampshire, a network of three great talk radio stations heard across the Granite State. The economy, is that still a driving factor in terms of the, the conversation on your show? I think in real life, yes, and I'm talking about it. I think the political powers to be, and they tend to be probably a little more Democrat powers to be right now, want to talk abortion rights anything but inflation, anything but Joe Biden, anything but energy prices. But here in New England, Michael, and you're familiar with the whole country, we we have an unusual situation with energy. And I don't think people outside of New England understand it. But, you know, I was looking for the real reason why Senator Manchin of West Virginia kind of did the 180 on this big spending, the climate and tax package. And it's because he's getting a pipeline permit for West Virginia. So surprise, surprise. shows you how politics operate, but in New Hampshire and New England, and we don't have the natural gas pipelines that we should. Everyone votes them down and Democrats don't or Republicans, you know, no one pushes for them. So our electricity rates are the highest in the country. Utilities of our raising electricity rates, something everyone needs three or 400% starting this week in August going into the winter. And we still, a lot of people still heat with oil. It takes oil to make gas. It takes gas to make electricity. So I think inflation and energy prices are really the number one driving issue. And do you think that anybody in politics is addressing it directly, or do you think it's just a bunch of cosmetic, um, you know, Band-Aid remedies so that the core constituencies are happy, but um, nobody gets into trouble and nobody goes out on a limb? Well, I, I think some maybe are, but I think most people are just totally hypocritical about it. On the one hand, we all want a clean climate. We all want a clean environment. There's nothing wrong with solar. There's nothing wrong with renewable energies, but we're a fossil fuel-driven society still. People don't – I'm amazed that a lot of the people – although I, I don't think people are as stupid as some people in Washington think people are, but you know, this, this new administration, the first week or two, they executive ordered, nixed all the energy projects and permits that the Trump administration had reopened – when you think about it, two years ago, when oil was a fraction of a cost it is today, the American oil producers were cranking out two more billion barrels a day. We just saw President Biden go to Saudi Arabia to kiss the ring of the crown prince to ask him to drill for more oil there. Yet he's not asking the U.S. oil companies to do more in Pennsylvania, Dakota. We have more oil and natural gas in Saudi Arabia and Russia combined or the entire Middle East. And, and, the, and the Biden administration gets away with bad-mouthing our American oil and energy companies, and it takes oil to make gas, gas to make electricity. So I, I don't get it. Um, it's hypocritical. It's too bad it's political, but it is. Do you think they get away with it, or do you think the Biden administration and the Democratic Party are in trouble as we head toward the midterms and eventually to the new presidential election? Well, 
That's the gigantic question, Michael. That's the big question right there. You know, um, if if independent com- voters come out in, in a bigger percentage, because, you know, you can pretty much predict on, on abortion rights, on a lot of these issues, where Republican voters are going to go, where Democrats. But independent voters, at least in our neck of the woods, really determine if the state's purple, red or blue. And if they're voting with their pocketbooks, which I think they will be, to buy hamburg and chicken and back-to-school clothes and electricity rates and oil and gas are going to go up, heating bills are going to go up, I think they're going to send a message. And, you know, again, it's too bad in this country we can't have a good discussion on energy without, without it getting political and, and pointing fingers. I mean, I'm all for clean air, clean water, but there's so much hypocritical. I mean, on the one hand, John Kerry the climate czar and a lot of these Hollywood celebrities will fly in their private jets to climate conferences in their private jets, burn more fossil fuel in those private jets than you and I want a lifetime. And then they tell us what, what car we should be driving. So, I mean, come on, uh, you know, we, we have enough oil and gas in this country and we should have a long range view on how to definitely use alternative sources. But last time I checked, people in New England need electricity as the days get shorter and they like warm homes when it's 18 degrees out. <laughs> and, and that's what politics comes down to. It comes down to your own comfort zone and uh, ultimately what they say, oh, it's the economy, stupid. People vote their pocketbook. And um, I yeah. guess I guess that's what we will uh, what we'll be seeing. You have any conversation in terms of the bigger picture of climate change and uh, the environment? Because um, that kind of relates to this in, in, in a abstract way. But where, where do you and your audiences stand on that? I, I think I think younger voters have been it's been ingrained in them they're much more passionate about it. i think you're aging you know 40 and 50 60 year olds are very pragmatic you know i mean i have solar panels in my home in new hampshire and i think they work great they cut the electricity costs so technically i'm green but at the same time i have no problem with you know good clean affordable gas or oil or natural gas and 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 so you know i mean again if if climate change is global i asked this of my morning listeners on my show the other morning Last week, if, if climate change is truly global, that's what we're told, right? It's global. It's global. Mm-hmm. Climate change is global. Again, how can a president of the United States a few weeks ago get away with going to Saudi Arabia and ask OPEC to drill for more oil in the Middle East if it's a global problem, and yet we won't drill safely with shale resources and technology for more oil and gas in Pennsylvania and North Dakota? How come no one in the White House press corps asked Joe Biden that question? Well, I mean, how come the White House press corps don't ask uh, any president the kind of questions they should be? Uh, you, uh-huh. you and I had that conversation recently on your show about yeah. um, the fact that um, uh, reporters are more concerned about maintaining their access, not rocking the boat, and um, in some cases, just being television performers as opposed to um, to real journalists. So, so that's a problem. While I have you, um, one of the themes we've been talking about on the show today, uh, this weekend, has been crime all across America. And, and most of it uh, emanates uh, from the urban areas, the big cities, Philadelphia, uh, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. You're in Chicago. an area, uh, Chicago, certainly, as a shooting gallery. Um, you, you have a show that, that's heard on three stations across the state of New Hampshire. So many people across America picture New Hampshire as bucolic and, you know, uh, beautiful, uh, not that heavily populated. What, what is the crime issue um, in, in your state and in your region and on your show? Well, I think there's two inherent differences. Uh, we do not have an anti-police sentiment, I think, in New England, not just New Hampshire. I mean, my, my show is on a, a few other affiliated stations, and, 
we have a different philosophy on public safety. You know, a big story no one's talking about is why is it in the last couple of years so many families have moved out of cities in places like New York City, uh, you know, big cities into more uh, rural areas. And, and it's not just because of COVID. I, I'm, it's public safety. And, and, the, and I, think, I think these larger cities, you know, what's over the number of years, and I don't want to get into the reason. I mean, the George, George Floyd case was bad police work and people have been, you know, prosecuted. And, and not all police work is 100% stellar. But 98% of it, 99% of it is. Most of the officers I know in public safety are doing it because they want to help. And, and uh, you know, in our state, they're wearing body cameras at the state police level, the largest city. But there's a community relationship with law enforcement. And in these cities you're talking about, it doesn't matter the weapon. There's a violent, there's a cultural violent problem where younger people are killing young people uh, every weekend. And in a lot of it, you know, the, the police have left the community. They don't want to go into the community because they're spit on, they're urinated on, they're shot at. There's a very hostile environment between law enforcement and business owners and residents, or maybe residents in some degree. And a lot of the local city leaders in these places we've talked about, uh, any chance they get, they bash the police. Any chance they get, they bash the police. So there's a recruitment crisis in New England and in the country. Who wants to become a police officer? But yet when there's crime and a, and a store is burning or someone's been raped or shot, first thing people do is call 911. But, you know, so I don't think it's I think part of it is local leadership, understanding there is a relationship with local law enforcement and public safety. And it's not a bad thing. And I think that's what's different about New England and the rest of the country. When you talk to officers, they actually feel when they go out and get a cup of coffee or go into a shop and they're in uniform, people will say, hey, thank you for what you do. You know, I don't know in certain parts of the country if they do that. That's radio talk show host Jack Heath at our affiliate, The Pulse of New Hampshire, a network of three talk stations heard across that beautiful New England state. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. The economy was the most talked about topic on news talk shows across America this past week. We're joined now by a media renaissance man. He's a rock music historian, a prolific murder mystery writer, and a sports talk show host heard for the past 33 years on WFAN New York, the one and only Richard Neer. What were your thoughts about the brouhaha over Bruce Springsteen tickets going for $5,000 each? Well, you know, it's part and parcel of being a recording artist today. Uh, you can't sell records uh, with downloads and sharing, file sharing and everything. There aren't platinum selling records. There aren't gold records much anymore. You know, there might be one a year. Um and, and you can't make money selling CDs. I mean, who buys CDs anymore? Uh, who buys out, you know, vinyl is out selling CDs actually these days. So the only way an artist can really make money and sustain themselves, and we're not talking about big money, is to tour. And, uh, you know, obviously Bruce Springsteen has done so many tours, so many world tours has played in every nook and cranny of this planet of this planet mm -hmm. and he's embarking on a big tour of Europe and then he's going to come here and do a big tour of the United States and the mechanism for selling tickets is so much different than it was 50 years ago when Bruce first hit the scene when you know you'd go to a ticket office and you'd wait in line and you'd buy tickets there and scalping was illegal well now Basically, the secondary market is legal in most states, and the result has been, uh, you know, a more dynamic pricing where it's supply and demand. 
So if you're doing a concert tour and people really, really want to see it, um, and, and they have an opportunity to buy tickets, some very well-heeled people will pay $5,000 for tickets, which, of course, raises the price that everybody else pays. And it's very, very hard for an artist. Uh, Bruce has been very, very diligent over the years of keeping his ticket prices affordable, but the horse has left the barn on that. And even though you try to, to set a cap on the ticket prices, with the secondary market, it's whatever the, the public will pay. And that's kind of what's happened here and made some of these tickets ridiculously expensive. Yeah, it makes you wonder. The question has come up on talk shows, and I wonder if it's come up on your sports talk show where you're known to also talk about music because the fans in New York remember you from your WNEWFM and your WLIR days, um, is if the economy is so uncertain right now, and people are, are struggling to deal with inflation and, 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 you know, the economy is obviously, generally speaking, a problem for many people. Where do people come up with $5,000 to pay for a ticket to sit and watch somebody sing 45-year-old songs? Uh, and, 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 I mean, it's a hard question to answer because it's not specific. But has that come up um, in your broadcasts? Absolutely. And not just with that, but... You know, we're talking about the price of sports tickets ah. now. You know, to go to a baseball game in New York City and have decent seats for two people, you're probably talking about an outlay of $500. Outrageous. Now, I, I come from an era where, uh, you know, I, I would go to Shea Stadium in 1965 to see the Mets and I'd get general admission for a dollar and a quarter and then move my way down into box seats down the third baseline, you know, back in the day. Now I understand inflation and everything else. But also back in those days, the, back in those days, the, the arenas were not sold out. That, 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 no. At, at, at an average daily ball game, you know, half of the place being filled was considered to be a big crowd. Now, I mean, like take up in New England, the Patriots, every, every game sold out. And I assume the same is with some of the big New York teams. I'm not quite sure, but um, the, 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 the stadiums, when I watch games on TV or the arenas for basketball, they're packed houses. You don't see empty seats. Why is that? Well, exactly. And, and I just wonder where, where do people get this kind of money? You know, because uh, it's, it's like 45 to $50 to park at Yankee Stadium. If you're driving your car there, mm -hmm. uh, beer can cost $15. A hot dog could be $8, $9. So it's, it's, it's pretty outrageous. And yet, you know, we talk about the secondary market. It's what people will pay. You know, people will charge whatever the going rate is. And if people are willing to pay $500 to go to a baseball game, you can bet that those franchises are going to charge that much. Are, are, are uh, by and where large, that money comes from, I have no idea. By, by, and, <laughs> by and large, is it possible that the majority of these expensive tickets are being bought by corporate concerns and then being distributed as perks to the families of employees, to the families of clients? In other words... Is it possible that a significant percentage of the people we see in those stands at tickets that cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, that they're getting them for free because they're being paid for different sources with deeper pockets for um, political and um, commercial reasons? 
Yeah, I think that's that's in large part what it is. Uh, I mean, you see, like Yankee Stadium, the seats right behind home plate, first row, are twelve hundred and fifty dollars each yikes. for a, a regular season game. So, who who has the kind of money to do that? Uh, a, a Wall Street firm, maybe entertain their clients. That's sports talk show host Richard Neer of WFAN in New York. You can learn more about this rock music historian and murder mystery author at richardneer.com. Coming up next, a deep dive into the hot issues with Newsmax TV host Greta Van Sustern. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, D2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. Longtime cable news talk television commentator Greta Van Sustern began a new gig this summer as the host of her own early evening show, The Record with Greta Van Sustern, on the rapidly growing Newsmax channel. I caught up with her this week for my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, which will be posted this coming Tuesday at talkers.com. Meantime, here's a sneak preview of a timely segment of that conversation. As a former defense attorney, uh, you obviously have opinions about the crime wave that's going across the country and the role of DAs and judges in terms of putting criminals back out on the street. What are your thoughts about the the, 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 the spike in crime statistics going on today? Um, dipping into your experience as a, um, as a lawyer and as uh, one who was known for being a defense attorney. Well, let me compartmentalize. As a lawyer, you're an advocate assigned by the Constitution to give effective assistance to counsel to your client. So I did everything I could to get my clients out on bail. That was my job. Um, and I also, at the same time, knew that the prosecutors had a bigger budget, had a lot more money, and, the, and their job was to keep people in jail. What has happened today, and I'll tell you as a citizen, is that we can't have communities that are dangerous. And the communities have gotten exceedingly dangerous. It is the social experiment that Chesa Boudin tried in, in San Francisco um, is, has been a disaster. Any of these, any of these big cities that are, that are so light on crime, they, and they're making it exceedingly dangerous for everybody else. Um, it hasn't worked. It just doesn't work. So, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to go back to the other model where we keep the community safe first and we lock, you know, we lock people up who should be locked up um, and give them a, make sure they get a fair trial. But at the same token, by giving them a fair trial, it's got to be fast. 
we can't put people in jail pre-trial for two years or three years. You know, we, we, the, you know, we should do, keep with the speedy trial like the Constitution is that we have a swift delivery of fair justice. So the whole system is broken, but uh, but releasing dangerous people to the street or, or not rearresting them is, is not making the street not making it safer for everybody else. Crime is one of the biggest topics that uh, is not only being talked about in the talk media, which are talkers we follow, but it's also a great political motivator right now. People are voting based upon public safety, although you don't really get that feeling when you when you follow it on television and, and radio, just how concerned about crime uh, people are. Um, let, me t- let me dip into your legal background um, for another question, and that is uh, the Supreme Court uh, front and center is uh, in the midst of tremendous controversy. We just saw a fascinating election in Kansas um, on the abortion issue. What, what are your general thoughts observing this new Supreme Court? Um, I respect the court. I don't always agree with it. I have been teaching about it when I was an adjunct professor. I practiced law in all my cases, uh, had Supreme Court issues because I represented protesters at the White House and I did first degree murder. I did everything. And I haven't, and I don't always agree with the Supreme Court on its rulings, but I have the enormous amount of respect for the, for the institution. And I think it's terrible when it gets torn down um, by by politicians or even by protesters um, who, you know, it's, they, I, they have a right to protest and, and that's fine. But when it starts getting personal, that's not okay with me. Um, but in fact, I, don't, I mean, you have a right to protest. Like I said, I, I represented people who protested. Um, but I think it's very, I think it's terrible that when we try to destroy this institution, because it's sort of one of the last remaining institutions that had some semblance of stability. You mentioned that you, uh, one of the highlights of, of, of your new um, uh, position at Newsmax is that you had a chance to cover uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Do you think that there was great danger attached to that? Do you think it made a statement that's necessary? What are your views on, on her trip to Taiwan, which yeah. uh, is so dramatic? Well, for her, let's, let's talk about the danger issue first. Let's take the personal danger. I would not have wanted to be the press pool on that plane. Not when I saw that China had said, first, they're going to fire flares. Secondly, they're going to do uh, uh, maneuvers to, uh, to deter it. And then thirdly, they're going to shoot it down. So I would not have been particularly happy um, flying on that plane. Uh, obviously, you know, we have lots of fighter planes to protect and to retaliate. But uh, retaliation is after something horrible is done. That's when you get even. Um, um, so I don't know whether they could have protected. So, you know, luckily, uh, it all went safely. Um, now the question of her trip, um, I think it's important that we stand with, uh, Taiwan and democracy. It's very important that, uh, because China, Taiwan is being threatened. The U S of course has been supplying Taiwan with weapons and whether we should supply them with more weapons is an issue for Congress. Now the question of whether her trip was wise, look, she was supposed to go in April. And uh, she got COVID. She tested COVID right before a trip, so it got canceled. Then she then she uh, announced the trip to Southeast Asia. Um, it was announced, but her itinerary minus Taiwan. And then all the all the noise came from China. And then she also had, though at the same time, she got uh, pushback from the White House and the Defense Department. And this is where I break with her on this: is that I don't think it. I, I don't think it's wise that she should have. That I think she should have worked it out with the White House and the Defense Department in advance. I don't think the Speaker of the House on something like foreign policy should have in something so serious and putting her job at jeopardy because she's the Speaker of the House, not just her personal safety, but the Speaker of the House. Whether whether it was handled correctly, I thought that the spat between the White House and with her publicly was a bad signal to China and a bad message. 
Um, so she should have worked. She should have worked that out under wraps. Um, yeah, I think that I think she she achieved many things by going there. Um, but but get how how we got there was a very rocky road, and I'm not so sure what we gained because now we've got the situation where President Xi of of, of, the, of communist President Xi of, of China has uh, she has gone there. She met with the president of Taiwan and she safely left after all his threats. So he has now been humiliated because he, you know, he pretended like, you know, all these tough things were going to happen. He didn't do it. Well, it's never good to humiliate someone who's a potential enemy. I'm not saying we should, we should coddle him, but we're not particularly good to uh, enrage him. Plus he's got the promise that he's got a struggling economy in China and he's up for reelection that he wants, he wants to stay as head of the head of the party and head of the country longer. And so he's got every reason to try to show that he's big and tough. So that's the situation we now have on our hands. I'm not saying we shouldn't be weak, weak need against people who are enemies, but the strategy of how we achieve and show our strength, you know, is important. And um, we lucked out on this, but I don't know what the future brings to President Xi. Um, I never want the United States to look weak. But I want us to be smart in how we um, display our strength. Very well said. I mean, it's not it's not wise to corner a rat. <laughs> it's, you know, right. it's, it's That's just... exactly right. I once when I was little, in fact, when I was little, there was a, my parents were gone and my sister was three years older was babysitting. That was a lousy babysitter. I got to tell you, uh, <laughs> that's uh, a questionable choice. But a squirrel got in our house. Uh-huh. And so my sister and I decided chasing the squirrel with a broom was a good idea. Uh-uh. Well, the squirrel just went nuts and ripped down curtains and everything else. It would have been bad just to open the doors and uh, and wait a little while and watch the squirrel walk out. Instead, we acted like lunatics and so did the squirrel. And, then, and, and, and for that to happen in today's world, considering how dangerous it is, you know, you know with nuclear potential and all that, and not to mention some of these authoritarian dictators who operate on uh, emotion and show uh, and have limited uh, uh, respect for human life in general, um, it's not a very smart it's, way to go about doing your business. Oh. Yes, and not only that, you've got to factor into it the, quote, miscalculation. Right. Is that the, a mistake? I mean, they could do it deliberately because they're mad and, and humiliated, or they could just make a mistake and, and perceive something wrong, or someone could just do something wrong. Yeah, the awful thing for the world to come to an end because of human error. That, you know, that, 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 that would certainly be a, a, an awful turn of events and, and a very real possibility. Um, as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, I'd love to hear what you think about um, the ultimate impact on Donald Trump and his position as a leader within the GOP and a potential presidential candidate, the January 6th committee. Do you think that it is... Um, hurting Trump or helping him by galvanizing his position among his core as, um, as a martyr. Um, how do you think this is I, going to play out? I think, I think any GOP he was going to shed from the January 6th uh, events have been shed. I think that he, and so anything now galvanizes those who were not shed, the GOP that were faithful to him. I think that if he, I think if he elects to run, that the prim- in a primary, um, I think it's his. The question is what happens in a general election. Um, I don't think that, uh, I'm, I'm not, the Democrats seem confident that Biden can uh, beat him. I, with an inflation like this, I don't think that's possible. I think people, you talked about people voting on crime, that's, you know, crime, it's also, you know, the pocketbook and the money. But with crime and inflation, I think that, uh, I think that uh, it's always better to be on the offensive than the defensive. Biden has to defend his record on inflation and crime as, as the leader of the, of the United States. 
and Trump is in the position of saying, look what inflation was before I left and look what crime was before I left. So he's on the offense. So he's, he's in a much better position. So I'm not confident that Biden could beat him. I do think that Trump is vulnerable, though, because I know a lot of Democrats who, you know, I mean, a lot of Republicans who will vote for him. I know Republicans who won't vote for him. I know Republicans who are hold their nose and vote for him. I know some who enthusiastically, but the bottom line is the question is, what are the independents going to do? And this matters to both the Republicans and, and the uh, Democrats. The independents are the, you know, are the goal that you, have to, that you have to solicit and you have to convince and persuade. Um, I, I don't think if it's a Biden-Trump, I think that Biden's uh, at handicap. Um, but I also think that um, I also think that the Democratic Party has a very thin bench right now. I don't think they can take Gavin Newsom because California is a mess. Um, I don't know who their strongest candidate is. I think they probably have to take someone out of the business world would be would be smarter. So I don't you know. So I think Trump. There's a good chance Trump, Trump could be president again. But pr- Trump is vulnerable. I, I think. If, if DeSantis can somehow uh, beat him in the primary, you know, DeSantis and Pompeo have uh, are very sort of strong candidates in terms of the GOP agenda. So I think it'll be an interesting race, but Trump could be the spoiler for the for the Republican Party, or he could be the big winner. That's interesting. Uh, you mentioned the thin uh, the thin bench of the Democratic Party. I noticed you uh, did not mention Hillary Clinton. Do you think that that's uh... oh, that's oh good. I'm glad you raised that. Uh-huh. I have covered her since the mid-90s, and when she was Secretary of State, I um, t- did eight overseas trips with her. I was at Fox News at the time, and um, and she did, and the Obama administration wouldn't let her, uh, wouldn't let cabinet people do interviews with Fox News, but they would let Hillary Clinton uh, interview with me overseas, off on foreign soil. Or, that's what I was told. I don't know, Korea, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's at least mm-hmm. what I was told. So I had had eight interviews. So I, I followed her very closely around around the world. Um, and here's my thought on Hillary Clinton. Um, she, I never saw anyone work harder. I, it's like unbelievable. And she, I mean, you hit the ground talking to generals and presidents. And, and I, I was, I watched it. You know, I, I, I traveled all over the world with her. She comes back and she runs for president. And I think, who is that? And I think to myself, she's got to get rid of those handlers because it was like someone had invaded her body. Hmm. Then she gets hit with the server in the basement. And um, she does this press conference, and I think, oh, my God, she's some weak thing. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's, you know, it's so weak. Instead, instead, instead what I would have done, she, if she talked to me as a former criminal defense attorney, I mean, I don't give advice to politicians, but what I would have said, <laughs> I would have stood up. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't have stood up being defensive at the cameras. I would have said this. I'm a 65-year-old woman. I think that's how old she was then. I'm a 65-year-old woman. I was born in, you know, 1950 or whatever it was. Um, she said, um, I, I don't know anything about servers. So if you're looking to hire someone to run the IT department of your company, I really urge you not to vote for me because I don't know anything about servers. I haven't a clue. If, on the other hand, if you want to talk to someone who's had eight years' experience as U.S. Center, has traveled the world as Secretary of State, knows every general on a first-name basis, has, met, has been to 140 countries, knows all these presidents, has been on every important decision, even in the room when, when uh, Osama bin Laden, the Situation Room, when Osama bin Laden was taken down. If you, if you look, if that's the job, if that's the job description, you better bet, you better vote for me. And instead, she this, she's this mousy thing running from that server thing because anyone my age doesn't know what a server is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and would cut her slack, and she'd say, "Look, and, and if server, and she, and if server comes up as if I'm president of the United States, and the issue of server comes up." 
you know what? I'm smart enough to hire somebody to handle it. You know, it's funny you mentioned uh, that, that that if you had the opportunity to whisper in her ear and have her take your advice, that's what you would say. That's a that's a game I often play. Like, if only I could sit down with Donald Trump and have him listen when he was president, listen to my plan, how he could have come out of that being the most famous, loved president of all time. <laughs> it's like a, these people it, listen to the wrong people or, or to themselves. Well, they pay they, they pay they listen. It's like it's like the CDC listening to a, a media, a Democratic media strategist. What in the world is that? Hire an anchor who's on TV all the time. That's television talk show host Greta Van Susteren of the Newsmax TV show The Record with Greta Van Susteren. This conversation is a preview excerpted from a longer conversation that'll appear on my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, and be posted at talkers.com this Tuesday. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation, looking back at the week of Monday, August 1st through Friday, August 5th, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Wrap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.